0: This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 14, Episode 5, Chase Boudin and the Recall Election, talking with former assistant district attorney, Brooke Jenkins. Our guest today is Brooke Jenkins, former assistant district attorney in San Francisco, from 2014 to 2021. She resigned from the district attorney's office in October, 2021. A graduate of UC Berkeley and the University of Chicago Law School, Brooke spoke to us back in January about the recall of San Francisco district attorney, Chesa Boudin. Since leaving the DA's office, Brooke has been working with the Safer Without Boudin campaign. She joins us today to give us an update on the campaign. The recall election, of course, is June 7th, a mere six weeks away. Welcome to the show, Brooke.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me back, Jim.
0: My pleasure. Now, Brooke, since you were last here, a lot has transpired in the campaign to recall the district attorney. Give us your sense of the issues and how the campaign has unfolded since January.
1: Yes, and there has been quite a bit of momentum that we have gained since I last spoke to you in January. Most notably, were the election poll results that were released last month in March where 800 San Francisco registered voters were polled about whether or not they support at this time the recall of the district attorney and 68% of those polled said that they would at that time vote yes on his recall which was an astounding percentage that that honestly we didn't even necessarily expect. It was quite astonishing to see that the level of support for the recall at
0: this point. Mhm. Well, you know, it's interesting on the on the point of politics it seems as though there's a bit of a an anti-incumbent wave here in San Francisco. Back in February of course we had the school board recall which is unrelated to the district attorney but nonetheless it underscores that voters in San Francisco are very dissatisfied with some of their leaders. And then most recently just 2 days ago here in San Francisco we had an off-year election for, for the assembly, and David Campos was running against supervisor Matt Haney. David Campos, of course, former supervisor, was the chief of staff for Chesa Boudin, and he went down to defeat 67% to 36%, or 33%, whatever it was. So, you know, again, that 67 68% seems to be, there seems to be some magic there.
1: Yes, and a similar number was seen in the school board Recall, where I think the lowest percentage for one of the school board members was a 70% support for for that person's recall. And so, I think 70% is about the magic number these days in San Francisco. I think what we're seeing is a is a change of the tide. We're seeing, rather than a polarization, we are seeing more San Franciscans come together in support of issues that they feel very strongly about a sort of shift in the way that people are seeing the performance of, of the leadership in the city.
0: Now, of course, since January, we've had these two elections. We've seen a shift in political sentiment. Let's move on to the some of the cases. There have been a couple of controversial cases that have come to pass since you and I last spoke in January. Could you tell us about the the police brutality case, the Terrence Stengel case, and then that other case that we were discussing earlier that, that has now been dismissed twice.
1: Yes. And so the first case is Terrence Stengel. He was a police officer who, with his partner, responded to a domestic violence call during the course of that, the arrest of the suspect in that call Terrence Stengel used his baton in order to get compliance from the suspect, mm-hmm. and that suspect ended up sustaining, I believe, a broken wrist and a broken leg during the course of that arrest. And Terrence Stengel was ultimately prosecuted for excessive use of force. The way that that trial played out was one like I've never seen before, honestly. Prior to the jury hearing the case, there was testimony from a DA investigator. So there are sworn police officers that work in the DA's office as investigators that mm-hmm. used to work for police departments, but now work for the DA's office. And one of them took the stand and testified that during the course of The investigation and and work on this case that she was pressured to remove exculpatory evidence out of the arrest warrant for Officer Stangle, despite the law requiring that such evidence be included. So when you submit an arrest warrant for to a judge for them to sign and authorize, you have to include not just evidence supporting guilt of the crime, Mm -hmm. but you have to include any evidence that there is against that goes towards Mm -hmm. their innocence. And uh, so that the judge is making an informed decision about whether or not this person actually committed the crime. And this investigator said that she was threatened with actually being fired. If she didn't comply with leaving out the evidence that pointed towards Terrence Stengel's innocence, which was the evidence really surrounding the domestic violence that had been committed allegedly by him against his girlfriend at the time. And so that's the way that the trial began. Ultimately, as most people know, the jury ended up acquitting Terrence Stengel of all of the charges, Except one. They hung on one charge with only a few jurors, I think two or three, voting for guilt, and that charge was ultimately dismissed. And so, unfortunately, we have seen some very potentially unethical behavior from the DA's office in the handling of that case and there was another case which sort of demonstrates the the incompetence going on in the DA's office which is the David Donnelly case David Donnelly was arrested uh, and charged with 33 counts felony counts um including possession of firearms possession of methamphetamine and heroin for sale other uh, credit cards that belong to other people so identity theft and fraud And there were over 100 hours uh, of investigation went into that case by the San Francisco Police Department. And there that case was ultimately dismissed twice by the D.A.'s office Mm -hmm. the second time appears to be an accident or, you know, the result of the the DA's office not paying attention to the fact that it was dismissed once before, which is permitted under the law. Mm -hmm. But in a felony case, you're only allowed as the DA's office to dismiss it once and then refile it. You cannot dismiss it twice. If you do that, it's dismissed permanently. And so we saw this case be dismissed twice and therefore gone forever, losing again, 33 felony charges against this man and 100 hours of police work that went into making this arrest. And so it just really demonstrates the level of incompetence that we are seeing within the DA's office.
0: Now, it, it seems to me the way you outline the facts in both of the cases, and particularly in the Donnelly case, I mean, that seems to be like, District Attorney's Office one hundred and one practice. I mean, how could they get that so wrong? And we talked earlier about the huge turnover in the office. Could you could you talk about that also?
1: Yes, and unfortunately, we've continued to see the flight of experienced attorneys um, leaving the District Attorney's Office in San Francisco. We are up to, I think, fifty. 50- Four attorneys having voluntarily resigned mm-hmm. in addition to the seven that were fired by Chasa on his first day. And when the office is made up only of, of around 120 lawyers, we're talking about half of the office no longer being there, those who had – some decades of experience as prosecutors no longer being there and what we have seen is a trend in the hiring practices towards the office hiring people who have defense and or public defender backgrounds Um, and so they are coming to the office with no experience as prosecutors and they are being managed mostly by former public defenders who Chesa hired from his former office to Mm -hmm. come over and be in management positions. And so even for those who want to do the job correctly, they're not being trained by experienced prosecutors. They're being trained by people who themselves are having to learn how to do this job. And so there were safeguards in place. When I was a young attorney, younger attorney in the office to make sure that if a case had been dismissed the first time, that there were red flags all over it for mm-hmm. any other attorney to be aware of that dismissal so that you did not make the mistake of dismissing it twice. And it appears that those safeguards are no longer there. And I would imagine it's, it's due to the fact that we don't have real prosecutors um, and experienced prosecutors running the office anymore.
0: Let's just come back to the difference between a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney. Of course, many of our listeners, most of our listeners are are not attorneys. As an attorney, Brooke, could you give us a, a quick explanation of the skills necessary for a prosecuting attorney and the skills necessary for a defense attorney and how they're not interchangeable?
1: Right. And so as I explained in the, in the prior interview that I did with you, the job of the defense attorney is simply to represent the interests of the defendant, the person charged with the crime. Mm-hmm. And the, the district attorney has the job of proving that somebody has committed a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when we go into court, our job as the district attorney is to present evidence to either a judge or the jury to prove this person's guilt. That requires calling witnesses, that requires knowing how to introduce certain types of evidence like DNA or ballistics evidence. So when somebody shoots a gun and all types of different pieces of evidence. Mm -hmm. When you are the defense lawyer, your job is simply to poke holes in the prosecution's case, and so oftentimes that is limited to simply cross-examining the prosecution's witnesses. It, it quite often does not require the defense lawyer to present actual evidence to the jury, other than their questioning, and so they many of them don't have experience presenting a, a case. To the jury, the way that a prosecutor does, and so they just don't develop those same skills, which is why it, it's very—it's a very different function. It's different to to create a, a doubt in somebody's mind versus proving a case beyond a reasonable doubt to someone. And so when they come over to the DA's office, they don't have the skills necessary to teach young lawyers how to present certain types of evidence, because that hasn't been what they've had to do, or how to use our databases to look for certain types of evidence. And so they just simply aren't equipped to provide that type of guidance.
0: So coming back to the issue of basic management competence on the part of the district attorney, Chase Boudin. He came into office with approximately a complement of 120 attorneys in the San Francisco district attorney's office. He fired seven, and then subsequently an additional 54 have resigned. That's 61. So more than half of the attorneys in the district attorney's office in the last two years have been either fired or resigned. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And Chasa has tried to present this as normal attrition. He just did an interview recently where he said that in his view, the loss of these attorneys was normal and happens in in any type of office every year, and that he saw it as a good thing because perhaps these attorneys weren't on board with his vision for reform. And what we have seen is that it has created a demise in the level of competence within the office um, overwhelmingly. Like I said, many of those who have left had more than 10 years of prosecution experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you are losing some of your best and most experienced lawyers and replacing them with people who have no experience doing this job Mm -hmm. um, and just aren't equipped to handle serious felony cases.
0: Of course, it's incumbent on any district attorney to work closely with the police department. However, the San Francisco Police Department and the San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin have locked horns. Let's talk specifically about our chief Bill Scott and Chase Boudin and tell us about the rape kit test case which which seems to have have really worsened relations between the chief and the DA.
1: Yes. And so one thing I want to be clear about is that uh, ac- over time, there there's always been a, a, some degree of tension of course. that occurs between, you know, a, a district attorney and, and the police department. That is normal. But what we are seeing now is a complete breakdown in the relationship between these two agencies that need to work together to promote public safety police make the arrests the district attorney is who prosecutes these crimes and if the two agencies aren't working hand in hand that leaves the public out to dry right because these cases these offenders are not being held accountable what we have seen is that from the time that chasa took office he has been very antagonistic of the police department he mm-hmm. has deflected blame on the police department when he's been criticized rather pointing the finger at them saying they are the problem and more recently we have seen some very public attacks rather than discuss issues that he has with the way that they are doing their job behind closed doors mm-hmm. in order to facilitate that relationship between the agencies and maintain that relationship, he has decided that he feels it's better to receive media attention and to promote these issues publicly. And so one of the issues that arose recently was the DA's office alleged that a particular criminal offender was identified for the crime that they committed through DNA that was stored in the crime lab from a rape kit analysis when that victim was the victim of or when that offender was the victim of a rape previously Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so of course right anyone would be concerned about a a rape victim's dna being stored and later used to identify that person as the suspect in a crime Mm -hmm. and rather than go to the chief and the police department behind closed doors and discuss his concerns to find out one, whether his belief that this happened was true
0: mm-hmm.
1: or two, if it was true to discuss, you know, the ending of that practice, mm-hmm. Chasa chose to take the issue first to the media so that mm-hmm. he could have a press release and, and have headlines about it. And so that of course further the breakdown in the relationship between the agencies, because what we know about chief Scott is he has worked hard to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. He has mm-hmm. he has been a leader in, in police reform. He is one of the most reform-minded police chiefs in this country right mm-hmm. now and has done great work to improve the practices of our police department. And even in response to these allegations about this, uh, this DNA, he immediately said that he would investigate what had transpired. Mm-hmm. And if it were true that he would end that practice. And so that just uh, illustrates why, you know, it's, it's a, a grave concern that Chasa wouldn't have just gone to him privately to discuss this, but rather took it public in a manner that was appeared to be designed to just give Chasa media attention.
0: Now, let's come back to the quality of life crimes that that we, you and I, as residents of San Francisco, our families, our neighbors, our friends, uh, are, are experiencing every day. When we chatted back in January, we were talking about quality of life crimes on the streets, um, assaults, shoplifting, that sort of thing. We've seen, however a slippery slope seems to be gathering pace here where there seems to be an increased amount of break-ins home break-ins and that sort of thing is it's does that have in in your opinion as a professional in the district attorney's office for 7 years the fact that we the fact that the district attorney hasn't been prosecuting these lesser crimes has that emboldened the criminal to begin to attack residents in their homes?
1: Absolutely, Jim. When when somebody learns that there is no consequence for their behavior, and oftentimes you see people start off with a small risk, right? Auto burglary or theft from a store, and there is no consequence for their actions, they naturally begin to up the ante, right? And take larger risks bit by bit. And I believe that that has been what we have seen on the street. We've gone from a universe where most of us were simply concerned about leaving something in our cars because that would result in our windows being broken to now hearing resident after resident tell me that their house has been broken into or that somebody's tried to break into their home garage. And so now people are feeling unsafe in their homes. I think what's also contributed to that is we went through a period with less tourism Mm-hmm. And so there were just less cars on the street. And so these criminals up the ante and resorted to breaking into people's homes as well. And so the two working together have – driven the number of residential burglaries up dramatically. But I can give you a case example of how these cases are being handled, which, of course, then increases the likelihood that people continue to commit residential burglaries. There was a defendant who was arrested for a residential burglary in December of 2017. He pled guilty to that to that burglary and was sent to drug court when chasa took office uh, the defendant was in that program but and was out you know on release he picked up not one not two not three but four more residential burglaries hmm. after chasa took office and was released after each one of them sometimes on the same day that he appeared he made his first court appearance and after committing all of those additional residential burglaries he was given the same deal that he had before. There was no additional consequence from the DA's office.
0: It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that after this, well, well, why wouldn't a career criminal up the ante if he knows that there are no consequences for the, the, basically he's gotten four free passes, the way you've explained it.
1: Right, and what we know is that People on the street talk yes. when these when these offenders are in the jails, they talk and they tell each other, look, you know, I got every time I've gotten released mm-hmm. right away mm-hmm. back out onto the street. They're giving me the same deal. And so they begin to, to share these stories and they understand that in San Francisco, there is no consequence. There is no accountability. And mm-hmm. so there's no deterrence for them against doing the same thing that they've been doing or doing something worse.
0: hmm earlier off air we were chatting and you mentioned that that the district attorney has been admonished a couple of times from the bench from judges who've who've actually criticized the activities of the district attorney's office. Can you share that with us, Brooke?
1: Yes, we've had multiple judges at this point on the record in court admonish the district attorney's office publicly. One in which there was a situation where evidence had not been turned over to the defense, and the judge did not believe it was for any unethical reason, but rather because the management in the DA's office is is leading to the level of turnover, um, is leading to incompetence you know, within the, the office, mm-hmm. and they are seeing cases be handed to different attorneys every single week sometimes. They're having to be passed off to different lawyers. Things are falling through the cracks over and over again, and it is literally impacting the, the the flow of these cases in court. And so we had a judge uh, be very clear that he was disappointed and, and disapproving of the way that Chasa is managing the office and in what he is seeing in his courtroom day in and day out with, with cases being mismanaged. We had another judge who was in the middle of a jury trial when the assistant DA who was who was handling that case walked into court and told the judge he wanted to dismiss the case midway through the trial. And the judge said, "Well, what is the issue with with you wanting to dismiss this case?" And mm-hmm. he said, "Well, judge, I, you know, I hadn't tur- I just realized I didn't turn over this piece of evidence. The court has now excluded the evidence. I think, you know, I've talked to my supervisor and we think we sh- I should just dismiss the case." And the judge who actually was a former prosecutor said, what is going on here? We, this is a a retail theft case. We've got a a city that is struggling with this type of problem. This is not a piece of evidence that you need in order to proceed on this case. Mm -hmm. This case is, can be proven without it. It's of no prejudice to the defense because I've excluded the piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm seeing in front of me is not Okay. This is. These are the types of decisions that are impacting this city in a very negative way. And so these are judges who are fed up with the way that they are seeing the DA's office handle these cases. That is highly unusual. Mm-hmm. Very, very unusual. It's something actually in my seven years I have never seen.
0: Now, Brooke, here we are seven weeks, less than seven weeks out from the election, from the recall election. Is there anything... Or are you seeing any moves by Chesa and his office to right the situation, to circle the wagons? To uh, are there are there any fixes, uh, or is it just too late? Is it uh, has the uh, is it too much of a mess for him to be able to turn around? And given the polls, it looks like it looks like a, looks like a, a, a pretty tough situation.
1: You know, I think Chasa has expressed very clearly to the city that he doesn't want or desire to do anything differently. He has been interviewed several times recently on television and has made it clear that he stands firm on the way that he is running the office and the way that he is moving about resolving cases. He continues to try to emphasize his charging rates, that he's charging more cases than his predecessors. But everyone knows that it's what's happening on the back end with these cases that's the issue. And he stands firm that he doesn't believe that these criminal offenders are to blame for their conduct. He sees them as the victims. He deflects blame onto other agencies of government, particularly the police and the mayor. He says that it's the it's the imagination of San Franciscans about crime that's that's at issue. Not that crime is actually a problem in the city. And so until right, until Chesa takes responsibility in any part for the landscape of, of what's going on in San Francisco, we are not going to see anything change. But he has been unwilling to do that.
0: He does have a campaign. It is being funded. We've read reports about Significant donations coming from large out-of-town donors, whether from Southern California or from the East Coast. Any thoughts about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's something that comes up quite frequently because he spends a great deal of time emphasizing his issue with the donors to the recall, um, particularly one specific donor that he harps on quite often, ignoring the fact that most of the money funding the recall campaign has come from regular voters and, and citizens within San Francisco what he leaves out and what he wants no one to pay attention to is the fact that it nearly half or more of of his campaign financing has come from outside of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. We know that at the time of his original campaign, some of his biggest financers were Reed Hastings, the co-founder of Netflix, his wife, Patty Quinlan, that one of his main supporters was John Legend, who lives in LA. We actually just had John Legend tweet Uh, recently in support of opposing this recall. Mm -hmm. Um, And that created a, a, a massive reaction here in San Francisco because it's people outside of our citizens in San Francisco have taken great offense to people from outside trying to tell us what's appropriate for our city.
0: Well, Brooke, in the remaining few minutes left of our podcast, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? And many of our listeners are Here in San Francisco, they're paying attention to this race. They're going to be voting in this race in seven weeks' time. In fact, with early voting, I guess we'll start to, we'll be able to vote in a couple of weeks' time. Any closing thoughts for our listeners?
1: Yes. And it's mainly that we need to make sure not just that people support the recall in theory, but that they come out and vote on June 7th. The recall on the ballot will show up as Proposition H. And so we are really pushing for those to mobilize that as a part of this recall, support reform of the criminal justice system. We support a moving towards alternatives to incarceration and a fair justice system. But we also know that we have to have accountability. People deserve to feel safe. And right now, there is a lack of balance between those two. Public safety is not a priority for Chase Boudin. And that is his job. And so we need to move forward, just like with the school board uh, recall, that those parents mobilized and, and made it clear that education is a top priority. Mm-hmm. We know that Public safety is a priority for San Franciscans. And the the only way we can return to some sense of safety in our city is if we all get out to vote on June 7th and vote yes for Prop H.
0: On that note, Brooke, thank you very much for joining us for a second time here on the San Francisco Experience and i hope that perhaps on the eve of the recall you'll come back and give us a give us a, a summation of the case counselor that our listeners i'm sure would would value I've
1: been happy to do that thank you so much for having me back
0: my pleasure and for my listeners thanks again for your ongoing support the san francisco experience is celebrating its second anniversary We're featured on 19 podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, among others, with listeners in 50-plus countries, and we are 271 episodes strong and growing from strength to strength. Again, this has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.